or uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. hear the word of God. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we find your people uh, drawn to this mountain, uh, we, we are thankful that, uh, that they had to experience it and not we. Uh, and yet uh, we are able, we know, to learn from this experience as well. And we ask you that we might, indeed, through the reading, but also through the preaching, and unfold uh, the meaning of this text for us today. Let us learn from them as we were meant to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're at an important juncture in the book of Exodus. We've just concluded the Ten Commandments, uh, which we stopped and considered in a detailed way. Eleven sermons on the Ten Commandments. And I doubt any of us would uh, think that that was unnecessary. Uh, But here, what we are considering, just as we considered the prelude here, now uh, the aftermath of the commandments. The people standing at the mountain and what we see is their reaction. Just to remind you, we read this earlier, but what came before, and this is what they're reacting to, Exodus 19, uh, 16 through 19, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and stood. they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. So this gives us some sense of what it was like to hear this law. We don't just have uh, the Ten Commandments. As we notice from the aftermath, it, it isn't just the fact that God spoke and what he spoke, but all of these accompanying, accompanying signs. As we read again, verse 18, when the, people's, when the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Matthew Henry speaks of the extraordinary terror with which the law was given. Never was anything delivered with such awful pomp. Every word was accented and every sentence paused with thunder and lightning. And I I think that we could say that that really isn't exaggeration. That is the sense that we get. God was speaking in the midst of all of this. And thus we understand their response in the aftermath of this. Frankly, as they stood there, they were stunned. And any desire that they had uh, to break through into the presence of God had completely vanished. It wasn't a pleasant experience to receive the law like this. It greatly terrified them. And it made them ask God to deal with them uh, going forward in a different manner. Don't speak to us like this anymore, uh, they said. 
And so, in light of this, as we find them at the foot of the mountain, in what I'm calling the aftermath of the Ten Commandments, I want to ask this question. And that is, what happens when God reveals his law to the sinner? What is that experience like? I talked uh, last time, toward the end of the sermon, of the law work. The law has to do its work. Well, what is that like? How is the sinner apt to respond to the law work? This is, I think, a useful case study in this whole phenomenon. The work of the law upon the sinner. And here, uh, repeating, as I said last time, it is a necessary work. The sinner must be confronted with the claims of the law if ever he's to see his need for the gospel. He needs, I'm saying, to be terrified, as Israel was here. Not only that, but in the case of Israel, as we will see, this was necessary for Israel to see her need for a new covenant, as this was uh, the decisive moment in the old covenant. And so what is that law work like looking at these people here? The most obvious thing that we can say, and as we find in verse uh, 18, in fact, I have four points, and it's verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. The first thing, first point we find in verse 18 is that the law work is terrifying and glorious. It is terrifying because glorious. It is terrifying because of what it revealed and how it did so. Revealing to us the righteousness of God in the law. Revealing to us equally his hatred for sin. And, and, and also how it did so with thunder and lightning and so forth. Accompanied with the voice of God. The audible voice of God. God speaking to man here directly. This was a unique moment in the life of the people of God, frankly, in most of the Bible. And so it was, by the very nature of the case, a terrifying experience. I've often said that I'm glad I wasn't there. It's not something I would have wanted to experience. And I think that I'm justified in saying that. You read about certain things in the Bible and you think, I wish I was there, but not this day. Later on in the teaching of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I said we'd read that in the course of the sermon. He tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, that thankfully we don't have to come to this mountain. As though to say, aren't you thankful that we didn't have to experience what these people did? That we weren't there and experienced all of that fearful uh, occurrence. And so he says, I'm going to break this up. This is the first part of the quote. For you have not come. You see already he's saying. Aren't you thankful? You have not come to the mountain. That may be touched. And that burned with fire. And to blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet. And the voice of words. So that those who heard it begged. That the word should not be spoken to them anymore. You see that's what we find here. They're saying make it stop. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so uh, much as, as, as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. You see, even Moses was afraid on that day. It was all so terrifying. But let us see why it was so. Aside from the obvious consideration uh, that the lightning and the fire and the, 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 uh, the thunder made them afraid. 
There was something else that made them afraid. And that was the voice of God, that God was speaking to them directly. And it was uh, equally what he was saying. He was speaking to them, not the gospel, but the law. As a result of this, they not only trembled, but they stood at a distance. Again, in contrast to their former desire to break through, which God forbade in two separate places in chapter 19. He tells them not to do it. And then he says, I want you to make a barrier to make sure they don't do it. Well, none of that was necessary now. There was no inclination left in any of them to break through. They wanted to get away as far uh, as far as possible. And so I would say, looking at Mount Sinai might begin to come to this mountain, might begin with a desire to draw near and to gaze upon God revealed in his law. But that desire won't last the longer you stay there the further you will want to be. By the time God has finished speaking, your only desire will be to get away. You remember the story of Pilgrim, or um, of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he went out of the way, and he started wandering to the mountain. The closer he got, the more he felt that the mountain would fall upon his head. Well, there's important reasons for this. There are three reasons. That the law is terrifying. The law is spoken by God from Mount Sinai. And the first is that the law is meant to do this. That is its purpose and design. It is meant to frighten. It is meant to terrify. There are numerous statements in the New Testament that reflect on Israel's experience of this specifically, especially in Galatians and Romans. Here was the tutor that was to teach Israel as a nation of her need for the gospel. And so she was meant to learn the lesson of the law and we along with her. The more the law drives us in fear away from itself, that is, away from Mount Sinai, in arousing in us a sense not of self-satisfaction but of terror, the more blessed relief we will find in the gospel by the time we come to the New Testament and we meet with Jesus, the Savior. Indeed, there's really no other way for us to experience this relief and to know it as relief Until the law has done its work. And so there's that point again. The necessity of the law work. It is beneficial. Beloved. To be terrified in the conscience. Through the work of the law. Men must feel that they are sick. If ever they are to feel their need. Of a physician. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus didn't come to heal. The well but the sick. Not only that, but men must feel as they find through the law a sense uh, and an urgency to flee from the wrath to come. Which is, again, part of the preaching that we find in the New Testament through the preaching of John the Baptist. They are fleeing from the wrath into the arms of a faithful savior. And so that's the first reason it's meant to do that. But uh, we could also say along the same lines. Secondly. That the law is here as spoken in this dramatic and fearful and terrible way, a token or a foretaste of the final judgment, which will likewise only more so be associated with such terrible signs. God declaring his righteousness, terrifying the sinner, and again, the presence of so many terrible woes and signs. But again, what we are considering is the experience of man at that moment. What men discovered and they felt by this law was that they were guilty. 
They came by it to a knowledge of sin and that they were thereby held accountable to God. Romans chapter three, verses 19 and 20. They knew that by this standard, they would be judged on the last day that the God who gave it would hold them accountable to his own words for God to declare. This is my standard. Live by it was for them to sense that their lives would not live up to it. And that on the last day, they could not possibly bear the scrutiny of his divine judgment. And so they trembled in fear. And in a sense, you could say uh, their desire to get away from this mountain uh, parallels the desire for men on the last day to get away from the wrath of God. Only they can't, which we read about in Revelation. But we see another reason that this was so terrifying. And I think this is the most important reason of all. And that is the fact That God is himself a terrifying being. God is terrifying. I know we have difficulty saying that sometimes, but it's true. And we ought to see it. This is one of the things that many Christians have struggled with over the years or the centuries. Since they've read their Old Testaments in particular. How often God appears as a terrifying figure of judgment. Look at him, for instance, just six chapters into the Bible. Drowning the entire world in judgment, or or by chapter 8 at least, we find him doing that. He's warning about it in chapter 6. Or Sodom and Gomorrah. Or drowning the Egyptians in the Red Sea. We often find the Lord coming in judgment. As opposed to this, seemingly, this is a caricature, but seemingly an immature understanding of scripture will lead you to say, well look at the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. I was just reading uh, about Augustine's early uh, early life as a theologian. He went through the uh, phase in which he uh, subscribed to the teaching of Manny. He became what was called a Manichaean. And one of the hallmarks of the Manichaean teaching is that they rejected the Old Testament. They did not believe that this God who was so full of wrath and so terrifying was anything like the God they met in the New Testament. And seemingly that resolved uh, the duality of good and evil uh, in the Manichaean system. Thankfully, Augustine grew out of that. But this is something uh, that's just a way of illustrating that this is something that Christians have struggled with this over the years. How do we account for the fact that so often God appears in this terrifying way, the majesty of his judgment and wrath in the Old Testament? How do we account for it? Is this a different God? As Manny suggested, well, as I say, some have thought have sought the resolution in this direction. Another thing a lot of Christians do is they just don't read their Old Testaments or preachers don't preach it. It misses what makes God so appear so loving in the New Testament. It's the fact not that he sets aside his wrath and decides to be merciful and to let everyone off the hook and not to be wrathful anymore but rather that he establishes a new covenant covenant by exercising all that wrath upon his son at the cross. The new covenant is not devoid of wrath. There's more wrath there than you'll ever find in the old covenant, but it's found at the cross. Along with that, you also find many warnings in the New Testament that if we do not kiss the son and accept salvation from his hand and make peace with God through him, then the son will be angry with us. And all the wrath that we read of in the Old Testament will pale in comparison to the wrath of the son when he comes in judgment on the last day. 
Read the book of Revelation and you will see that. And so the wrath of God is an important concept in understanding who God is. He is, yes, a terrifying being, especially for the sinner who can abide his presence and live. But let us see that this has uh, intentionally a special prominence in the old covenant, not that it was a revelation of a different God, but that God was intentionally revealing something about himself in the old covenant. It was a covenant, and we just read it uh, from Hebrews chapter 12, a covenant of darkness and terror. That's the point of the contrast, Hebrews chapter 12. If they were afraid, these people at the foot of the mountain, if the majesty of God impressed in their thoughts that God was a terrifying being, that is because it was meant to do so. And if our experience is different, on the other hand, it isn't because we're any better than they, or that we are dealing with a different God. It is uh, simply that, as he says, we are privileged to deal with God, not on the basis of law, but on the basis of the blood of Jesus, as the writer to the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion. You remember, he just said you have not come to this mountain, this dark and terrifying mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel was the first man killed under the old covenant. Jesus, the first man killed under the new and whose blood. Whose blood are you listening to? One which cries for vengeance, another which cries for mercy. If our experience is any different than theirs, beloved, it is only because Jesus has made it so. In coming to this mountain, we deal not so much with God's laws, with his son, who is our mediator and whose blood speaks peace and reconciliation. But apart from that work, we must conclude that God is indeed terrible and terrifying. Rather than fleeing to him, we would wish like them to flee from him. The second point is this. We find it in verse 19 that the people pleading that God would stop speaking. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God, let not God speak with us, lest we die. Not just pleading that God would stop speaking, but that uh, in particular, that he would speak only by his servant Moses. And so in this experience, we discover our need for a mediator. Or I mean, in their experience, we discover our need for a mediator. It's odd to see that they now venerated the voice of the man they once despised, Moses. But God's voice and the terrors of the law made them do this. They felt anything was better than for God to keep speaking to them in this way. Make it stop, they said. Speak to us in any other way than this. In this way, they discovered the wisdom in that method which infinite wisdom takes of speaking to us by men like ourselves, whose terror shall not make us afraid, nor their hand be heavy upon us. Once God tried the expedient of speaking to the children of men immediately, but it was found that they could not bear it. 
It rather drove men from God than brought them to him. Let us therefore rest satisfied with the instructions given us by the scriptures and the ministry, says Matthew Henry. Once God tried it, he spoke to man directly. But that was enough. Men could not bear it. And so they discovered the wisdom of divine wisdom and of providence. What we see in all of this is how weak and frail we are. We sinners, we creatures, clay and dust, that's all we are. Can we really bear the voice of God and live? And you know, we might think, and we probably often have thought, that if only God would speak from heaven, then I would have no trouble believing. And then I would obey. But this whole episode reveals the folly of this thought. Not only would his voice crush you, And make you feel that you would die. But it would not succeed any more in securing obedience in the ministry of his servants. As Israel's idolatry later proved. God did speak from heaven. And yet she was idolatrous. And so as Henry says, we should be thankful for the ministry. Men like Moses to speak on behalf of God. We should be thankful for the scriptures. We discover, as he says, the wisdom of providence. That God should speak to frail sinners In the voice of man rather than in the voice of God. Even the incarnation of God's son follows the same procedure. You might be thinking, well, what about Jesus? Well, it's the same thing exactly. God speaking his voice, not from heaven, but from earth in the voice of a mediator. Even Jesus, who is the son of God, came down from heaven and assumed our form so that he could speak to us in a way that we could bear. In other words, he spoke to us in the voice of a man, even though he was God. And let us be thankful for this rather than despise it. Again, we might think if only God would speak to us from heaven, it would be easier. But no, it wouldn't. It would be so much worse. And if ever we wonder why it should be so, let us remember this episode. Why it is that God speaks to us in the voice of man rather than in the voice of God. But that brings us to the next verse, verse 20, and the third point, what God says by his servant Moses, having dealt with them by this law. And there are three things being said here. We see Moses said to the people, and then I want to divide this statement in three. First, he says, we can be thankful for this. Do not fear. Here they were afraid. They were trembling. He says, don't fear. That's the first thing he says to them. Moses assures them. That the thing they feared would not come to pass. God did not design in this episode to kill them, even though it seemed that way. They would live. And the things they feared were now coming to an end. The thunder, the lightning, the fire, even God's voice. It had come to an end. Do not fear, he says. But so that they would understand God's purpose in this, he explained, secondly, that God has come to test you. That's the second point. What God said and what God did was meant as a test. A test, obviously, of their obedience to God as he gave them the law in order to instruct them in the way they should go. But also so that he might try their faith as to how they felt when God dealt with them immediately rather than immediately through the ministry of Moses, the mediator. Well, it turned out through this trial that they discovered, as we've seen, that it was better, in fact, for God to deal with them immediately through the presence of a mediator. 
But then thirdly, it was a test to see how they felt about God himself, which we find in the last phrase that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now, the full scope of this thought appears to be if you take the full uh, statement that Moses makes. uh, And I'm not trying to be comical when I say this. Do not fear for God was only testing you in order that you might fear. Such is the thought we often find in Scripture. Something of it seems to us a paradox that we have trouble understanding. On the one hand, we're told not to fear. Very often, we're told in the same passage to fear. This is one such passage. Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Do not be afraid. Be afraid. How are we to make sense of that? Well, it would seem, and I think this is a very obvious solution to the problem, Moses is teaching them to distinguish one kind of fear from another. There was one kind of fear which they were presently experiencing that thought it better not to deal with God, to run away from him rather than run to him. It regarded God as so terrible and terrifying that the less we dealt with him, the better. The person who is afraid of God. But another fear Instead of running to uh, or running from runs to it seeks to hold on to God, even though he is afraid. And even to hold on to the fear itself, to keep it always before him, to keep him from sinning. God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. It isn't just a fleeting experience. It's something that's meant to last. And the more and more we deal with God, the more the second kind of fear grows. And ideally, the less and less we sin. And so in one sense, you could say Moses was saying, don't be afraid to be afraid. Don't be so fear filled with the fear of God in dread of his majesty that you cannot maintain a healthy and a true religious fear of him. We should be afraid lest we in fear forsake him. That's the kind of thing you find in Hebrews. And that is true fear. That is godly fear that leads to obedience. So Moses is saying that God had in mind in giving this law and impressing upon them a due sense of his terrible majesty. Their need to fear him that they might obey him again, a godly fear. He wasn't seeking to kill them, but to kill their sin and to spur them on to mortify it themselves. And so this is how the law comes to us even now. At first, it terrifies. It causes us to draw back in fear and to conclude that that uh, that if this is what it is like to deal with God, then we're better. We're better off not dealing with him at all, which uh I may, in the course of preaching Romans, begin to explore Luther's experience of the righteousness of God. At first, it was something that terrified him rather than encouraged him. He did not find something that drew him to God. It was something that uh, that drew him away from God. But then, as we find Moses doing so here, so we discover ourselves, God speaking to us in this moment through his servants. And he tells us to shake off this guilty fear and to take up instead a true fear and reverence of him whom by the law we are taught not to offend. And so to use the language of Calvin, the first use of the law leads to the third use of the law. 
as we considered last time. But then the final point is interesting to see. Here they were standing at a distance. Here they were afraid. But we read in verse 21 that Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. It's perhaps the most amazing statement yet. And from there, we also see that he received further instructions regarding this law that he was to give to the people. Again, now God taking up the old method of speaking to the people through his servant. And that will take us to the end of chapter 23, which we will begin to consider next time. But the significance of this verse, let me read it again. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. It's an amazing contrast in that single verse. The significance of that verse is not only that God was not finished speaking, he he was done speaking to them directly, but he had honored their request, and now he would speak to his servant and to the people uh, by him, and so he invites him in so that he might instruct him, and then he could instruct the people. That's what we will find in the ensuing passages. The, The significance of his drawing near into the darkness cannot be limited to that, but also that we gain a further glimpse into the whole idea once more of mediation and what it is to have a mediator. Again, this episode reveals this to us. What Moses does here is a highly useful picture of what Christ is to the believer, especially as he's terrified by the law. And surely we're able to say, appreciating the contrast between the old and the new covenants, that whatever Moses was to the people, and for the time he stood in relation to God and the people as a mediator, Christ is to us abundantly more so. And so look at the people here again and, 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 and see Moses as their mediator for the time being. The poor people nearly crushed under the weight of the giving of the law. They are driven off. They cannot draw near, nor are they permit, permitted to. The people stood afar off. That's the first sentence. Yes, but it, uh, or the first phrase of the sentence. But in this very episode, this very same episode, and at the same moment, God bids Moses to draw near. To pierce into the thick darkness which made them afraid and which they were forbidden to enter themselves. Do you understand the significance of this? It tells us that while they were unable to draw near and unwilling, there is one who is. It's an amazing picture to see the people here too afraid to do anything, yet Moses going where they feared to go, into the darkness. If they could not bear the presence and the voice of God another moment, Moses could, even though, as we read earlier, he too was afraid. Do you see in this, uh, this moment, how great Moses' ministry was to the people of the Old Covenant and why he's so venerated, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Faithful over the house of God in those days. This is something we will see again and again. The faithfulness of the ministry of Moses. And that what they could not do, he could. And so he did it for them, even if he too was afraid. He was, as I say, for the time being, their mediator along with the priests. And yet, having said that, we still know there was only so much he could do for them. We know this as well. Moses, too, was frail and weak. He was clay and dust and sinful. He could only bear so much himself. We find this later on in Exodus 33 and 34, where God is telling him, you cannot see my face. 
So he passes between the cleft of the rock and uh, with his back turned to him. And so Moses teaches us the principle, as the priest would later do, of our need for a mediator. But in this, we also realize that they were only types and shadows that pointed to the greater reality. But by the time you get to Christ, this whole experience takes on a different light. It has the same basic features, but it's altogether more powerful. If we were to think of our own plight in terms of these people, we could say this, that there we are, too afraid to draw near ourselves. We are terrified by the thundering and the lightning of the law. These things have made us afraid of God himself. But Jesus, our mediator, draws near into the very darkness that terrifies us. And there he not only meets with God and his law, but he meets with the very vengeance that is found in it. And what is the result of Jesus, our mediator, going into the darkness? It is that the darkness is made to pass. So that the mount he ascends takes on a different aspect. Not that of dreadful darkness, but now of gospel light. And so we, like they, depend upon a mediator to deal with God. But unlike them, totally unlike them, and let us appreciate this fully, our mediator enables us to draw near ourselves. Not to stand at a distance, but he going before us, we then after him. Not in a fearful approach of darkness and wrath. For again, we must realize that the result of Christ's work in going into the darkness, is that the cloud has been made to pass by the cross of Christ, for it has been endured and overcome. But now we are bid not to stand at a distance as they, but to draw near full of faith in the clear light of the gospel. Only our approach leads us not up an earthly mountain where we meet with God like Moses, but into heaven itself. Consider again the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, verses, let's see, I have it in my notes, if only I could find it. Uh, There we are. Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of angels or than that of, uh, excuse me, than that of Abel. And read that against the backdrop of Hebrews chapter 10, where we are encouraged to draw near ourselves. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Do you feel the force of those words in light of what is said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21? The people stood afar off, but Moses drew near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's all because of Jesus. The fact that he, one who was greater than Moses, ascended the mountain. And made, as I said, the darkness to pass. Do you realize, therefore, what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us about our experience in contrast to theirs? Do you see how great our privilege is compared to theirs? They were privileged to have Moses. 
Thank God they had Moses to ascend the mountain, even as they were too afraid and indeed forbidden to do so. But we have Christ. And look how much we gain by him. We may find the same dread and fear that they did at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But unlike they, we are bid to come to another mountain, even Mount Zion, the mount which ascends into heaven itself. And until you discover what this means, what it means to come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, well, you still have much to learn about what it means to be a Christian and the advantage that the Christian has over the Jew. Or to put it differently, the privileges of the new covenant above those of the old. And you might need to go back and read the book of Hebrews again. See that the law as it comes to us is not finished with us until it makes us draw near to another mountain. Until it drives us away from itself unto Mount Zion. And there we ascend the mount, not of ourselves, but through the ministry and through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Whose blood speaks better things. And then you will know what it is. Not to shrink back in fear as the people did. But to draw near full of faith. Into the presence of God. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by singing together. And as the final hymn of the month. We'll sing this a cappella. Hymn.